Hey, hey, it's a wonderful day. We are back here with another episode of That 90s Baseball Pod. I'm your host, Brandon Warren, and you can find me on Twitter at Brandon underscore Warren. I am joined, as always, by my co-host. And if you are an MLB fan, there's a 30% chance he played for your favorite team. His name is Greg Olson. You can find him on Twitter at G-R-E-G-G-O-L-S-O-N 30. How are we doing today? We're doing well. Another beautiful day here. I had to drop uh, looking a... Forward to, uh, looking forward to seeing where you're going to lead me today. Ooh, that's scary. I had to drop that 30% on... Uh, see how you react to that. Because <laughs> last time I said zero starts and, um, you know, maybe I'll change it up. Maybe I'll, uh, maybe well, I'll do something different every week. But yeah... 30% chance he played for your favorite team. I was trying to figure out how to do the math since there were two expansion eras. But you know what? At the end of the day, I figured you played for one of them. In fact, the expansion Diamondbacks themselves. And I thought, ah, let's just go with the fact that there's 30 teams as of when you retire rather than 26 when you started. Yeah, we can do that. And then, uh, <laughs> yeah, the 30% was, uh, was, it was a good, was a good call. I like that. And you know what? The way I was kind of looking at it after I, started bouncing around and getting traded and you know in season i uh tried it was trying to break the record and i think uh mike morgan had it at 12 mm-hmm. um Ed, edwin jackson has since taken that over but so it became something kind of like yeah you know what i'm gonna make a run at this it's it's fun to bounce around you meet new guys get into new cities and and uh you know it lasts for a year or else you get traded mid-season and and then you just double it up but ended up uh falling a little bit short of Mike Morgan and then like I said I think Edwin Jackson's up at 14 or 15 now <laughs> I know he didn't play so. for the twins that's about all I know there that that uh <laughs> and, and you also had a, a couple runs with the Royals separated by a year if I'm not mistaken so you've got a couple different different ways of uh diversifying your portfolio oh yeah oh yeah like I said it was fun it was a fun ride wouldn't uh wouldn't trade in a thing and usually it means you're a bad clubhouse guy. So do you want to clear the air there that uh, you were not a bad clubhouse guy? You were just a reliever trying to ply your craft. I'm just, I'm just messing with you there. But uh, sometimes sometimes they no, say I kinda, if, I kinda, I kind of looked at it the other way where yeah. you know if I was if I was such a bad guy, they wouldn't keep you know bringing me around at all. And um, so I felt like I was a good clubhouse guy that uh, you know could function as a relief pitcher and and would uh would be all right well good yeah no we we agree from this angle so uh not that that is much more valuable than anything else you'll hear today but uh again this is that <laughs> 90s baseball pod uh week one we introduced greg to our our audience we love our audience if you give us five stars on itunes we'll love you even more and we are working on the process of uh rewards for re- um reviews and maybe even a patreon so uh, just let people know that you and I have been kicking that back and forth. This is, of course, powered by Access Twins. We've got Hinterland Coffee as a sponsor. Check them out online. Google Hinterland Coffee. Uh, Humility Chains, if you're interested in wearing some nice jewelry that's not going to cost you an arm and a leg. Royce Lewis's mom makes it. It benefits a charity called Nigu that they both, Royce and his mom Cindy, believe in. So check them out on Etsy. Three-star sports cards on Lindale in Bloomington and Rice Street in Little Canada. And yeah, that's uh, that's all kinds of stuff that you can check out. Uh, Little Canada, I, I figure that's just Minnesota in general, isn't it? <laughs> I, oh, man, it I, I love Minnesota. I love playing there. It was just a you know great place, great city, and uh, yeah, Little Canada was, was that's pretty good. Nice. 
I call us East Dakota sometimes too. If it wasn't for the Twin Cities, we'd be East Dakota. So, um, yeah, <laughs> we have a fun, jam-packed show. It's a kind of two-part show with things that are of the of the essence right now. First, the trade deadline. I want to talk to you a little bit about what it was like when you played. Now, you, not that I saw you were ever traded at a specific deadline, although I do want to ask you if the deadline moved around. But we're going to talk a little bit about what you observed, because it looks to me, just based on kind of combing over your career, that the trade deadline evolved into more of an event. Would that be a fair assessment, or am I missing the mark here? No, that's a fair assessment. Um, okay, you know, I'm, we're, this is the, the 90s pod, so we'll yeah. go back to 80s and 90s when I came in, and, and the trade deadline was, you know, free agency wasn't a big deal. Um a lot of times in the eighties, it was the same group of guys for a long time and people didn't go free agent. So the trade deadline was about, about as dead as it got every once in a while, you'd get a guy that, you know, was going to be a free agent or kind of a career bouncing around guy like me that might get kicked. You know, if I'm having a good season, get kicked or, you know, kicked somewhere else that, for a pennant race. Mm -hmm. But it was never really a big deal. Like, you know, we, uh, in 89, the Orioles were having a good year. We were second in the AL East when there was no Central. And down to Toronto by a game or two. And our big trade deadline was, was getting Keith Moreland from the Cubs. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember, I don't remember the Blue Jays doing anything. The teams really didn't do a whole lot. And, uh, I think early in the 90s, the Blue Jays, the 92 or 93 Blue Jays picked up Ricky Henderson at the trade deadline. And that was when Ricky was, you know, really good. And yep. so it became, you know, I mean, I thought it was kind of a joke. It's like, well, what do you do? You just move everybody back. You got Alomar leading off. You got Robbie Alomar leading off. And then you got Molitor. You got Joe Carter. And you got this whole aspect. I was like, you just going to slide Ricky in front and move everybody back eight, you know, and, and how you going to, how's that going to work? But that was the big, the only real big trade deadline game changer of, you know, kind of the late eighties, early nineties. We didn't have it. It was, it's just most of the guys were homegrown and mm -hmm. not, not a big deal. So that part of it's changed. And, you know, the way the, the game is done where, you know, it used to be all, your group of guys that you came up with through the minor leagues and you, you, you pick up a guy or two, you know, free agent or a trade or something. And, and you guys kind of ran together for as long as you guys could run. And, um, you know, that obviously that aspect of the world has changed for baseball. And so Henderson only hung with the Blue Jays for a very short period of time. Actually, um, one of the tougher stretches of his career didn't, you know, hit 215 down the stretch. But again, that's kind of the risk teams take with that short window is, you know, you need somebody to perform in any sort of slump. I mean, we saw last year in 60 games, if you start out any sort of slump, there's not enough time to turn things around. Um, that's always true with relievers with a full season. Even, you know, if you give up 10 earned runs in April, your ERA is cooked for the rest of the year for the most part. But um, even still, that's a good point about the Blue Jays and something we'll probably do an entire episode on. I mean, I don't know if you'd call them a dynasty, a mini dynasty or whatever. And obviously the 94 strike, which is our episode next week did uh, cut into their potential for 
lengthening that out a little bit. So I like that you mentioned, though, even the guys you didn't mention. I mean, John Olerud could really go, and they had Devon White playing center field. That That's a point well taken oh. that that team was nasty. Yeah, I, I, I was I was partially joking, but it was like, Cito, Cito Gaston had the easiest job in the world. I just got the best leadoff leadoff hitter, arguably, if if you want to argue with it, about in MLB history. I wouldn't argue. And and then you you know I think they had either they had Devon White leading off, I think, um, or else Robbie Alomar. Then Alomar was second, so I think Devon White kind of just got bumped, mm-hmm. and then Ricky slid in, and then it was Ricky Alomar. Uh, Molitor, Joe Carter, Olerud, golly, Pat Borders was catching. I mean, Probably Ed Sprague at third or something. Stacked. Yeah, Sprague was at third. Um, this team was stacked. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so that was that was a big move, and obviously it helped bringing Ricky in. I don't. I think he. I think he lasted. You know, that one season, and then they mm-hmm. they kind of went back to what they were doing. But that was a pretty big deal, getting you know Hall of Famer arguably into his prime or just at the end of it. So, well, that, deal. that team could pitch, too, as I recall. Juan Guzman, Pat Henkin, Todd Sotomayor, Jack Morris after the Twins, Dave Stewart, um, even a young Al Leiter who hung around a little bit. I mean, that team could really, really go. And, and we'll have a full episode on that, so I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But um, definitely a team that was really fun to watch, although I guess probably being in the same division was uh, – a lot less fun for you than it was for me. No, yeah, they were probably, you know, I mean, uh, before the Yankees really started with uh, Mariano Rivera setting up Wetland. Yep. I would probably throw these guys having Dwayne Ward setting up Tom Hank, uh, Tom. Oh God. Hanky. Yep. Tom Hanky. And, uh, you know, both of these guys were just studs. So eight, you know, it was a race to the seventh inning against those guys. Yeah. What we see a lot in baseball today with the, uh, you know, the increase of the one inning reliever and that sort of thing. One thing I want to ask in 1994, MLB went from four divisions to six implementing for the first time, the wild card, which makes the playoffs expanded. And in a sense would probably make more teams inclined to trade for someone at the deadline to stay in the race. Um, I'll ask you another time how you felt about expansion. I'll ask you another time about how you felt about the divisions but for our purposes today, I feel like the trade deadline probably was affected by the fact that the playoffs, not in 94 because they never happened, but 95, uh, more teams were making it. So there's more reason to really push your chips in if you're two, three, four games out come uh, come deadline time. Well, you know what? It just made it a lot more fun. You get on you get on some teams that, you know, Cleveland's running away with the Central, I, I remember, in 95. And I was I was on the Royals, and it was just, Hey, you know what? We 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 still have a shot at the wild card, even though we're getting boat race in the central. And you know, having played before there was a central, before there was a wild card, man, August could be just flat dreary. <laughs> Especially in Kansas 18, City. 18, 19, yeah, you all you're 18 or 19 games behind the Blue Jays who end up winning the World Championship, and there you have no options. You're just playing the season out, mm-hmm. and it becomes a very um and it's hard to explain, and I hate to say it this way, but it becomes a very selfish month and a half or two months of of your career, sure. of where your 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 team's out of it. You got no chance of running down the Blue Jays, and you're you're chasing 17 or 18 games. 
you, you don't even hold the the hope because without a wild card, you don't hold the hope of running them down in two months. And um, you become it becomes a very selfish aspect of just trying to make sure that you finish the season really well. And you know, most of us didn't have the luxury of of getting a, a five year deal or a four year deal that you see now. It was, you know, season ended, here's May ERA, and you're going to the team and your agent and going, all right, let's, uh, here's a, you know, here's a comp. I got to, you know, let's, let's, let's try for that number. And um, mm-hmm. so the, the wild card was a great aspect for a lot of people to, you know, keep the season engaged, keep cities engaged, you know, make the playoffs a lot more fun to watch. Um and like you know, I and I don't think I ever realized it, but you just pointed it out, and it was really, really intelligent. Was that fact that um, you know the, the trade deadline changed then, just with the wild card, because you probably only had four or five, six teams that were even in the race by you know by the trade deadline. So who's going to get dumped? And and you know you only got one or two teams involved. So really good call on that one, Brandon. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's uh, the other thing too is if you're running away with it, you know, you you ask yourself how much you want to mess with chemistry. Again, I think chemistry can be at times a bit overstated by people who aren't in the game. I'm sure you have views on it versus what I have, but uh, you're probably hesitant to mess with chemistry. And also, like you said, teams were consistent. I mean, Kent Herbeck and Kirby Puckett played together for many, many, many years. How much are you going to shake up that core in 1991 by bringing in? Uh, you know, a, a different shortstop, for instance, to play next to Chuck Knobloch or whatever. So um, as the game evolved, I think that was a, a big change that happened and one that for me was entertaining. But again, too, I was pretty young, so I did get attached to players a bit more. But, um, you know, I like when the game evolves a little bit. I don't want it to change too much, but uh, change isn't always bad. No, but uh, you're you're right. You grew up and you're, you're, you're watching Herbeck and Puckett and Gagne now block for you know six years until he jumps over to the Yankees but mm-hmm. it's the same group of guys you know you could count on the same thing you're going to see these same guys for the most part they might pick up one new guy they might get a you know you might go get a reliever I got I got traded oh yeah about maybe two or three weeks after the trade deadline from Detroit to Houston and, 96 um, I mean it was great for me because I went from yeah I went from uh 35 games out of first place. I think that year with Detroit, we were the worst team in the league and got traded for, I don't know who it was. And next day I'm, you know, in first place with Houston, you know, up a game and a half over the Cardinals. So it was a trade for me. I loved it. Kevin Gallagher and Pedro Santana. Uh, And there you go. Players to be named later. It was, it was guess how much later they were named. I got nothing. The next day. The next day. Yeah, it says you were traded August 26. August 27 was the day that they were named. So, uh, not really sure about that one because you used to be able to name them and then have a, a window, and then take cash if the the players you saw didn't you didn't want them anymore. But one day, that's uh, that's something. Yeah, that, that, I I don't think I ever figured out. It was just, I didn't I didn't know I got traded for two guys. That was uh. Not my finest year, but you give up. I give up six runs against the White Sox one night. Got about one out. 
um, that will take your ERA from what could be about a three and a half and a pretty decent season to uh, a five. Yeah. So you look at the numbers, they weren't very good. You look at the, the breakdown of the one or two games where I think I gave up about 10 out of my, 10 out of my season's runs in two nights. You know, it was just one of those nights where you pitch in Detroit and old Detroit Ooh. and fans. If you haven't been to old Detroit, I'm sorry you missed it. It's, uh, it was built in like 1914, <laughs> but it was, uh, really short porches in the corners and center field was about 440. So, fun, fun part to see on TV. I, I started watching pre Comerica. So I saw some games there on TV and uh video games too you know you can go back and play video games from that era oh, yeah. and kind of get a feel for it so um yeah a very unique stadium to say the least it was um yeah you know what so give you the inside thing okay all the older stadiums like Fenway Wrigley and Tiger Stadium they would have these walkways from our visiting clubhouse and the home clubhouses that would go you know go into the dugout and they were built in, like I said, 1910. Uh, I think Wrigley was 1908. I might be wrong. Fenway was right around then. Detroit was right around then. And so you're walking from the clubhouse to the dugout, and the ceilings are, best case scenario, 5'8", 5'10". <laughs> so as guys have grown, you know, I mean, I'm six foot four, so... I was walking with my knees bent and my, my head bent, you know, leaning over to one side because you couldn't stand up straight in the hallways of these three stadiums. And that was the way I, I guess everybody was, you know, we, we've grown that much. I don't, I don't know. That's the way I had to look at it. Yeah. But you come walking out in Detroit and it's never failed. The grass is, feels like it's about eight inches tall on the infield. So, you know, you're trying to throw ground balls because it's not making it out of the infield. And it always seemed like it was cloudy. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it, it it's a very dingy, dingy looking. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But it was it was it was fun. It was fun to play in those old stadiums. I know we're, we're getting way off of topics and going Doesn't down. Bother me at all. But, uh, <laughs> Doesn't um, bother me at all. It was fun to play in those stadiums because you'd sit there and you'd look at it and go, you know, there's I got a corner locker here in, in the perfect spot. This, you know, Babe Ruth might have been here. Yeah or Ted Williams might've been in this locker and you start running through that and going, okay, this is really cool. So I'm, I'm a, I'm a huge baseball, not a historian, but I did, I just love the history of it. And I love the, the numbers and, mm-hmm. and what it all means. And to sit in those lockers and you're just kind of going Ted Williams, Babe Ruth, you know, drinking Eric, it in. who is, who, you know, who could have been sitting in this locker decades ago? And uh, it, it was just a blast. Well, I think your point about player size can be summed up with uh, Paul and Lloyd Wayner. It's a brother duo that's in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. And Paul was known as Big Poison, and Lloyd was Little Poison. Big Poison ran 5'8 and 153 pounds. That was me in, like, sixth grade. So <laughs> if that's how big guys were in the 20s and 30s, that's probably why those catwalks were so small. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that was uh, that's yeah. just a little bit of tidbit. If you if you get a chance to go to Fenway, those guys are walking with their heads scrunched over. I don't think that uh, I don't think they're gonna be able to 
do that much of an upgrade to fix a little walkway uh-uh. you know, no. to Fenway Park. I hope not. So you were traded on the 26th, and you said a couple weeks. I, I feel like I remember the deadline being August 15th for a while, and then it maybe moved back. Is is that something you recall, or am I off the mark here? I think you're off the mark. I think it's always been August 1st, July 31st. I don't okay. think it's I don't think it's waggled too much. Okay. Unless you know, um, I don't remember it being anything other than that. And okay. so you know, you wanted to go down that path. I I knew I was getting. I thought you know I'd been rumored. I'd only been rumored about twice. Um, Early on in my career, I wasn't getting traded out of Baltimore, uh, right. young and, and closing, and, and it wasn't going to happen. You know, uh, awful with the Braves. Um, Indians had traded me, and I was already in a pennant race with the Royals in 95. 96 was kind of, yeah, I'm probably getting out of here. 97 was a little bit of a pennant race getting from Minnesota to Kansas City. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so my other one was the Diamondbacks in 98. I was having a good year. and the first one was 96 and like I said, you know, two, two bad nights in tiger stadium and my ERA goes from a, a, a solid three, five to a, a five. And I, I was, I was depressing. Yeah. I, I didn't get traded out of there because I knew that the next two months were going to be what I talked about where I was going to be in selfish mode. And when you're in, you know, 35 games in last place, you, you don't have anything to play for other than yourself. And so you're looking around the room and, you know, come to the ballpark's depressing. And I hate to say that because, mm-hmm. you know, I grew up and all I wanted to do was play baseball. But when you are so far in last place that you can't even see the next team, um, it, it's hard to go to the ballpark in August. Because it's just you know it's hot, everybody's tired. You don't your your body just doesn't feel good, and you're going you know fans start kind of dwindling a little bit because you know games doesn't mean anything unless you're playing the Yankees and kids so, go to school. Yeah, it's hard. It's yeah. really it's hard. They call you know they 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 call them the dog days of August for a reason. And you know you asked me about the wild card. I think the wild card really has you know, added eight, 10 teams, maybe a year that normally probably wouldn't be in it. Maybe one or two of them would be, but now all of a sudden you've got eight or 10 that are looking to do something and, and figuring out a way at the trade deadline to, to help something, you know, keep their fans interested, keep their players locked in. And, uh, oh man, it was so depressing. It really was looking around and yeah. I didn't get traded at the deadline. And so I'm I'm sitting there thinking I'm stuck in Detroit for the next two months. And um, all of a sudden it was just, you know, I was closing with Detroit, which didn't mean a whole lot. I think I got 10 save chances mm-hmm. and <laughs> it's really bad. And um, <laughs> so we're playing somebody one night in late August and it's, you know, a safe situation. And I don't even get a phone call. You know, I don't even get up. I don't get loose. And it, it's kind of weird, man. You know, everybody else is just in their mode. So somebody's getting a shot to close the game that you know hadn't gotten a whole lot of shots. And I come walking in after the game, and I'm I'm a little pissed off. You know, it was a decent save opportunity. Right. And um, and you're in selfish mode, right? 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you, you know, you only get 10 save opportunities and you're 8 of 10 right now. You know, 9, <laughs> nine, nine of 11 looks a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Buddy Bell calls me in the office, and, and uh, like, you know, in our first show, I think we talked about Buddy. Buddy was one of my favorites. He'd, so he screams out of his office, hey, Alt! You know, and, and our our uh, clubhouse in Detroit was probably a 20 by 20 room crammed in with, you know, Oof. 30 people. <laughs> and so he just screams out of his office, hey, Ols, get in here. And I'm like, well, crap. Well, hopefully he explains to me why I didn't get the save tonight. And I go walking into the office and he goes, and he stands up and shakes my hand. He goes, man, he goes, it was a pleasure having you. He goes, um, you're on a flight to Houston at 6 a.m. in the morning. Wow. And it was just kind of going, wow. Um, okay, that explains why I didn't pitch. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sit down for a couple minutes. And, he, you know, he he didn't have – I don't think he had any beer in his fridge. So I had to go out and he goes, go get a beer or two. So <laughs> I had to go out into the, you know, into the food room and, and grab a couple beers. And I come back and sit down for about 15 or 20 <laughs> minutes with – Another one of the coaches, Fred, Fred Kendall, and we just kind of sit around and, you know, BS a little bit. And he's like, you know, it was great having you. Hopefully we can, you know, maybe get you back like, you know, the Cubs are talking about doing. Yep. And um, so I walk out and say goodbye, do this and that, and pack up, you know, a full locker full of stuff. And by the time that I get out there, it's, you know, I don't know, American League games, it's it's almost midnight. And my my wife and uh, my eight-month-old, ten-month-old son, had, oh, wow. you know, been back and forth between Baltimore and Detroit. So we had a little apartment, and um, one of the wives, I think Travis Fryman's wife, catches her. And, you know, in the, in the family room, in the side of the stadium, she's like... I'm going to miss you so much. And my wife's looking at her going, what are you talking about? Oh man. And so she got the news from Travis Fryman's wife that I got traded. And, you know, so we were close with the Frymans and it was, you know, a little bit of tears on her end. And then I come walking, you know, 30 minutes later with two big old suit, you know, travel suitcases, tiger bags and all my gear going, I'm on a flight in six hours. Yeah. And she's just looking at me. She's going, you know, Detroit was, wasn't home base. So we were renting furniture and an apartment in Dearborn. And it's just jump, you know, I jump, I jump a plane or a cab and go to the airport. And my dad flies in and, you know, grabs a U-Haul and just moves out all her stuff with my, you know, now 26 year old son. Wow. <laughs> um, and so they drive back and, you know, that next day or something like that. And I think they might've stopped and met me in Pittsburgh, but that's the life of, you know, or at least was the life in the eighties, nineties of you get traded at the deadline. You know, my only job was to be in Houston for a game against whoever we were playing that night. They didn't care that, you know, my wife and eight month old son are kind of stuck in Detroit. So, well, you know, it was a great trade for us. We got to Houston and, and uh, ended up getting second place. And But it's it's a different aspect of life that you don't get to see of just, you know, you've seen some of these guys, I love it, that they get traded across the field. And I'm going, okay, that would be bizarre. Yeah. 
going, you know, from home clubhouse to visiting clubhouse or vice versa would be just bizarre. Jay Happ had that happen this uh, this last week. Yeah, and uh, there was another one last year where it's just we get you know Seattle trade somebody and they go across the hall. Mm-hmm. And I just think you know you just sit there and you look at it and. You know, I have some theories on you know, the good clubhouse guys. If you if you watch the games, and it's going to be a big deal. Like I think Scherzer, you know, I think it sends the team down a rabbit hole of of losing some games. Mm-hmm. And um, psychologically, you know, yeah. And so I think you know, I don't know. The Nationals lost like three or four. Uh, Cubs, I'm sure, lost some games just because you lose this clubhouse dynamic. Mm-hmm. of some guys that were your guys and um you know it sends the it sends the team that's doing the trading away down a little bit of a hole which i'm not i'm not i can't gamble on baseball i don't gamble on baseball but something you guys that do gamble keep an eye out on yeah you go from the cubs being a bryant Baez rizzo team to uh jason hayward ian happ team i mean i don't know who's been there the longest now schwarber's gone and Arietta's been there and gone and came back, but he's kind of a shell of his former self, so you're not really giving him any credit. But uh, yeah, it it does change a lot. I think I think back in the compared to what you're talking about back in the day, I think we call that hug watch now, where uh, you watch for guys on TV to be hugging their teammates, and then you kind of have an inkling that they've been traded during the game. <laughs> Probably didn't happen too much uh, in your day, but yeah, yeah, hug watch is uh, certainly a thing. No, that's pretty good. Yeah, no, we were. I, I got traded. I might have been traded during the game, but I was stuck out in the bullpen. And and, uh, and then the next time was '98 with the Diamondbacks, and I was having a good year for the expansion first year team. And it looked like, you know, I think uh, the Braves had come in with a couple of guys. And you know, going back to it, it really changes the way you look at things. When uh, I had Terry Francona was our first base coach with the Tigers. Oh wow! And um, and so you know, he I was kind of moping around on the deadline on August first, and I was just kind of drifting and moping. It wasn't my normal self. And he just looks at me and goes, "You all right?" And I was like, "Yeah, I'm not." Goes, I was like, "You know, Tito, I thought I was getting, you know, thought I was getting sent out of here." And he just kind of looks at me and goes, "Well, he goes, you're a major league baseball player. He goes." you can trade for whatever prospects you think that you're going to get that are good players. They're not major league baseball players. You don't know what they're going to become. He goes, so yeah, you didn't get traded, but they're not going to just trade you to get rid of you and get some guy that's never going to make it, which ended up happening anyway. Well, so you start now start looking at it and going, yeah, these guys are all ranked and rated and, and they do everything else with baseball America. But, they're not actual major leaguers and you don't know what they're going to turn into until they get there and spend some time. So, you know, you can be excited about the trade deadline and getting some guys, but on the other aspect of it is, you know, you got a guy that you know what he's going to do in the major leagues. Well, and that's before and you don't the, have any idea what you're getting. Yeah. And that's before the prospect boom in early two thousands where everybody started talking about the next big thing for these teams. And, that made fans of, of bad teams a little more engaged too. And, you know, you've got the number one prospect in baseball, but you might lose 95 games. So there's something to that, but um, yeah, it, it definitely changed a lot too, to the point where it was uh, traded for minor leaguers meant something different in 1996 than it did in 2006. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's a little bit, you know, 
probably a little bit more data, some stuff that you can figure it out. But I, if that was the case, you know, we'd, we'd still see a better number of first round picks make yeah. it to the big leagues. If there was, right. if there was a way to actually see how it's going to play out and you're seeing that in football and basketball, five-star, you know, recruits ends up not even making it out of his second year of college. So, well, it the, is way, what it is. the way I think about that too, is even if you track it, and your prospects all are, are much better, there's still a finite number of people who can be big leaguers at any given time. Like, you can have the Dodgers farm system right now, but you're still only going to churn out at any given moment 26 big leaguers. And so that's when you start, you yep. know, kind of yeah, you're absolutely right. sloughing off. Um, you know, maybe you need a, a second baseman, so you trade for, well, you were going to trade for Brian Dozier, you end up getting Logan Forsyth, and then you end up trading Logan Forsyth for Brian Dozier later on. But... Yeah, at some point you can't fit them all on the 40. You can't fit them on your 26, and so you can you can create a wonderful farm system and all that, but you need you you're never going to have more big leaguers than 26 at a given time. Nope, yep. that's exactly it. So you know you can only do so much with so many of them. And, yeah. But like I said, you don't know who's going to make it and who's not. So the more you can amass, the better odds of getting some people running through Double AA, A, Triple A, and and getting a decent shot, you know, and, and having the ability to do it. How how was it to have your name in rumors? Because, you know, it wasn't the Twitter era. There was probably, you know, a few national columnists, maybe some we still know, but probably a lot of those guys were beat guys back then. Um, you know, to hear, if you ever heard your name in a, hey, could he be going kind of thing, what did that feel like? And then second part is what's the communication like from your front office saying, you know, you're going to hear some things, but just listen to us or just let it go in one ear and out the other. I know human tendency is going to be, you might have one ear to the ground and one ear to the sky, and hopefully the truth is somewhere in the middle. But what's that whole experience like? Um, it, it was nice to be wanted. Yeah. That, that was, you know, you, you look at it, and as an athlete, you know, you, you want to feel like you're wanted. And it wasn't that the Diamondbacks, you know, the, the the one year where I was, you know, having a really good year and in the rumors. Um, it wasn't that I, I didn't feel wanted by the Diamondbacks. It was just nice to hear, you know, I'm linked with the Braves and I'm linked with somebody else, and I don't remember who it was. Sure. And it was it was nice to be it was nice to be wanted. And so, um, it became a kind of a, a decision on how I'm going to handle this because. You know, the Diamondbacks were first year, Showalter, good manager. We had some pieces in place, and you didn't know what the Diamondbacks were going to do. They ended up going and, and playing big ball, big boy baseball in the, in the offseason and bringing in Steve Finley, Luis Gonzalez, Randy Johnson, and um, just stacked the team for 99. But in 98, you know, you – you knew you were in a tryout for the next year. You didn't know how they, you know, the Diamondbacks were going to slow play it like Colorado kind of did where in year four, you know, here's a playoff team. Um, so I had to decide how I was playing it where, you know, people were coming up going, Hey, you've been linked to the Braves or you've been linked to somebody else. You know, what do you think? And I was, I decided to go with, you know what? I, I love it here in Arizona. Uh, I love my team. I feel like we're going to, you know, be really good here soon and I decided to play it that way instead of going you know man Braves would be great or or just trying to you know 
run through the scenario of what it would be like to get traded. I, I, I just played it, you know, close to the vest and it would have been fun to get traded, but there's nobody, nobody walked over. I think Showalter might've said something after the deadline passed mm-hmm. of, you know, of who was on the offer. Um, but you know, nobody came up and, and was like, you're, you're getting traded. You're not getting traded. Here's what we're doing. I think they were, they were thinking about it. But um, ultimately, I, you know, I, I'd signed a two-year minor league deal because I was kind of, you know, coming off a bad season in 97. And, and uh, so I had a two-year minor league deal, which was a huge mistake on my part. Yeah, well. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, I was, I was playing for almost nothing the next year. So they kind of looked at that and they looked at, you know, I was having a good year. Maybe it was a resurgence for me, so they didn't trade me. But yeah. um there was there was little to no communication that I remember from the organization going yes no maybe here's what we're thinking nothing. It was just head down keep playing baseball we trade you see ya. You know I don't know I I don't know how it works now to be <laughs> honest with you Brandon I don't know if they yeah. if they come up and communicate I would highly doubt it I think they got better things to do than to let you know you know how they're feeling about you. I mean I would hope it's a little transparent in just the sense of like. Jose Barrios being a, a longtime twin, a drafted twin, maybe you're just like, hey, something could happen, and and just kind of being open like that. But yeah, I kind of I kind of get where you're coming from. Now, to your point about, and and I guess my point too about how a, a tough stretch can make your season be waylaid statistically. You said you had a, a rough year in '97, and I'm looking at your Kansas City stats, and I'm like, 302 ERA, pretty good strikeout numbers for the time. Oh yeah, Minnesota. And uh, so you had a 302 ERA in, yeah, that's kind of how the Minnesota era, I'm sure, is remembered. Um, 302 ERA with KC, and you gave up more earned runs in eight and a third with the Twins than you did in 41 and two thirds with the Royals. So thus is the life of a relief pitcher. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I get uh, Minnesota, like, you know, I I think we talked about it. I came out of spring training, was throwing really well and was making the team and, and, uh, in spring training, usually with relievers, you try to do a, a, a back-to-back day just to get them get them ready for the season and what's going to happen. And my back-to-back days were kind of like the last two days of spring training, and started leaking my front shoulder open and didn't really see it. And then all of a sudden, the season started, and I couldn't throw a ball to where I wanted it to go, and and uh, gave up six runs in a, in a third of an inning against uh, Baltimore, and then it just was a snowball. So. What ended up being, you know, I think I had 20 scoreless innings for the Royals right when I got there. I was just so happy to get myself fixed. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, a 302 ERA and six strikeouts per nine back then. I mean, that's that's a guy who's going to pitch some pretty pretty big spots, I would say. Yeah, no, I was, I was, you know, I ended up moving into the eighth inning role. They had Jeff Montgomery, who had a great career. Yeah, he was great. And. uh so I was setting him up, and you know, I, I think we were in the in the pennant race for you know a cup of coffee, maybe an hour and a half, and <laughs> but good, good group of guys, you know, uh, Wally Joyner, Jay Bell, uh, it was it was a it was a fun fun time. So the first time you were traded, we haven't talked about yet, and uh, I got to ask you, tongue in cheek, what was your favorite memory of being a Cincinnati Red? I don't, I didn't have one. 
it was <laughs> it was a biz- i had a i had a, you know what if i had a bizarre career and <laughs> that's all the fodder we need for a, a hopefully a wildly successful podcast though yeah but it was a bizarre career so i i go it was 96 and it was kind of the same thing i got one appearance with cleveland in 95 so really good team Mike Hargrove didn't like the way I pitched. He didn't like fastballs and high fastballs and curveballs, which kind of now the the going going everybody does that now. Yeah, tunneling. Um, but he didn't like the way I pitched, so it was either they had to trade me or I got called up with that '95 team that you know like we talked about Buffalo last week. Yeah. That John Hart, you know, okay, hey, if you want all these major league guys to come in and be your backups then you got to give me a way out because if I get stuck here in, in, in Buffalo and I'm having a great season, you know, I'm not doing it. And so we had it in my contract that if a major league team came in and made an offer, made a trade offer, then they either had to trade me to that team or another team or call me up. And so I'm throwing well for the Buffalo Bisons and I think Boston and Baltimore in 95 both needed a closer. And so one of them came in and both of them were making a run at the AL East. And um, so Cleveland called me up. Well, like I said, Hargrove didn't like the way I pitched. So I threw one inning, gave up a solo home run to, somebody and then I didn't pitch again for three weeks wow and I'm just I'm just sitting in the bullpen and it was it was a really good bullpen Eric Plunk uh, Jose Mesa you know Jim Poole Paul Ossenmacher it was a solid bullpen for a really good team but they treated you like a rule five guy yeah and so I was just sitting there and finally you know um, my son Brett was about to be born and we were going on a West Coast swing. Well, it's not just as easy. And I didn't make enough money to just rent private jet to go from Oakland to Baltimore. <laughs> yeah. And so I walked into Hargrove's office. And I was like, dude, you don't like me. It's obvious. I'm just kind of sitting down here. I can't even get no mop-up game. And we're getting ready to go on the West Coast swing for 10 days, two weeks. My son's about to be born. Can you, get, can you just let me go? Trade me? Let me go? Do something? Yeah. And um, that was where we, you know, we had the conversation. You didn't like the way I pitched with the high fastball and fine, you know, and uh, they end up, I don't know if they DFA'd me, uh, you know, designated free agent or what they did, but mm-hmm. I, I went home. My son was born naturally the next day. Nice. And so I was there for the birth and then within 24 hours, I get a phone call and Kansas city had traded for me. And that was, I mean, it was an unbelievable time of just, you know, God's hand in everything. Cause it was like, I'm home, son's born. I'm traded. I'm, I'm going to my hometown of Omaha just cause I hadn't thrown a baseball in a game in a month. Mm-hmm. And so I go to Omaha, I throw one outing against my Buffalo Bisons. <laughs> <laughs> Baseball's got away, and, man. Uh, Oh, it was it was funny because it was just like going, hey boys, you know that was me me hugging the guys that I just got traded from. Yeah, my version. Yeah, I'm doing it in Omaha, Nebraska. Your hug watch. Um, but it was, uh, and then I got called up 
you know, a day or two later and I'm setting up Montgomery and I, I throw in a bunch of games and they're meaningful for a little while. And it was great. It really was. I love how a question about the Cincinnati Reds got us down that rabbit hole because that's exactly yeah. exactly what I want that. this podcast to be about. Um, and the Reds aren't even one of the nine teams, the 30%, because you didn't pitch in the big leagues with them. And I think you were there like a month, like a literal month or two. Um, yeah, I was in Indianapolis. Yeah, where, yeah, how did I get down that? Where did I go? I'm trying to figure out how I got from Cincinnati to Cleveland. Anyway, I'm not so sure. And, and, uh, <laughs> I signed. Oh, so I signed with St. Louis in spring training, and go to camp. I got Larusa, Eckersley, you know, a pretty good St. Louis team in '96, and I had gotten hurt in the spring, mm-hmm. and was just really, you know, kind of muddling through it, not real effective, and and dinged up. And um, before I, I signed before Eckersley, so they 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 made a trade for Eckersley, I think. Sounds like and Oakland East at that close. point. Yeah, I had a shot to close for St. Louis when I when I signed initially as a free agent because, like I said, we, you know I threw really well for Kansas City. Right. And um, then they they signed Eckersley or they traded for him right before spring training. It was just kind of like a kick in the gut. So uh, didn't throw real well. Was kind of hurt and and asked for my release. And Cincinnati was one of the other teams I was looking at in, in the off season. And so I kind of walked over to Cincinnati's camp and signed a minor league deal and, <laughs> and, uh, went there for, went down to Indianapolis for a month or not even a month, maybe a couple of weeks. And they traded me to Detroit for, I'm sure you're going to pull it up, but it was like a Yuri. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It was a Yuri. I had it up here and now I'm, I keep a couple windows open because you know how I am a multitasker. Uh, Yuri Sanchez. Yeah, you're usually really you're on this one. I know it was a Yuri something. Yeah, Yuri Sanchez. Another Yuri guy who Sanchez. I, I don't oh, think made it to the big another leagues. Another guy that didn't make it to the big leagues. Yep. That and means it's a good trade for you then, though. They traded you, and you provided value for someone who never provided big league value. You could look at it two ways, kind of like when a trade is a team that wants you rather than a team that doesn't want you. You were traded in a trade that was a good trade because you were in the big leagues and that guy never did. Yeah, it was a good trade. And I got yeah. to Detroit and they, they needed bullpen help. And, and um, you know, I was able to sit there and, and play with Alan Trammell and Cecil Fielder and John Farrell. And uh, like I said, Terry Francona was our first base coach and Ron Oster was our third base coach and Buddy Bell and just a great group of people that, uh, was 35 games out when I got traded again. Yeah, I got <laughs> traded twice that year. That was great. Yeah, within two, uh, almost exactly, I think it's exactly <laughs> two months. Um, if people will, were lured here by the false pretense of us talking about Team USA today, I think we can agree we'll probably push that back to next week because uh, the Olympics will just be finishing up and we can then do the strike after that. But the way this has evolved to this point, we're not going to we're not gonna push it to time-wise. But um, I've enjoyed this talk too. And, uh, so we'll, we'll talk a little more deadline and we'll push USA to next week. How does that sound? That sounds great. And good. Got, uh, got some good USA stories and yeah, we'll and, give you uh, more time to prep you know. too. Um, but yeah, if you guys, yeah, if you guys follow me on Twitter, I, uh, I did say that it was, it was one of the greatest honors of, yeah. of, and tease it a little bit for next week, but it was one of the greatest honors of wearing that USA you know, um, cross your chest on the front of your Jersey. And I remember yeah. Ron Frazier, the great Miami college coach 
just said that, you know what, this will be the last time. And he was right. This will be the last time that you will be playing for the name on the front. Mm -hmm. He goes, for the most of the time, you're going to be playing for the name on the back after once you get to pro ball. And for the most part, he was right. And we talked about that with the, you know, dog days of, of August. So, Go back to the trade deadline. What do you got? Yeah, we'll go down the wormhole a little bit longer here with some specifics, and then we'll uh, we'll get you out of here and, and on with the rest of your day. Um, so the first real kind of trade deadline trades that I that I dug up, uh, Phil Bradley in 1990 um, coming in. I think was he out? George or not George Kittle? Um, Ron Kittle. I had the wrong sport there. Kind of like Greg Olson, football and baseball too. Um, <clears throat> I think it was, it was Bradley for Kittle. Uh, Jose Mesa shipped out from Baltimore. There, there were a few trades. The, the the main thing I'm wondering is since you weren't in a deadline deal per se, do you remember kind of what it was like seeing a guy leave or come in and what that process kind of looked like? You know what, for the, uh, the, the couple times that it did happen, you know, Bradley going for and bringing in Kittle, and like I said, you know, Keith Moreland coming in, in 89 um it was for the playoff teams it was invigorating mm-hmm. you got a little you got a boost you know you you doesn't really happen very often where you're trading a guy out of your clubhouse for a new guy you know most of the time it's a minor league guy most of the time not all the time yeah so you're not seeing you know obviously somebody's going to go down to the minor leagues if you're you bring in a major league guy to help but you're losing a guy or two guys and you're bringing in what you think is a, a better version. So it's invigorating. It's a, it's a big lift that, that lasts for a couple of days, maybe a week of just having gotten better via, you know, a trade at the deadline. So as far as specifics, I mean, if it's towards the end of the year and you bring in or ship out a veteran, like, so Mike Pagliarillo in 93 was on the obvious tail end of his career. Um, Pat Border shipped out in 95, Vince Coleman to Seattle in, uh, in 95 as well. Um, what's that dynamic like? Does it, does it matter much what the caliber of the player is? Because when you look at where those guys were in their careers versus their, um, name recognition there's obviously a discrepancy there in some respects like coleman obviously had been a much bigger deal at 10 years before paliarillo earlier with the twins and before that um yankees and i guess borders wasn't in the the end of his career but uh how does that vary in terms of what the clubhouse dynamics are like when a guy like that is coming in or going out who has a big name but maybe is is not as uh as accomplished as they were previously i mean well you get you know, like I said, it, it, it's a lift even if you recognize the fact that, okay, that they, they don't, you know, it's not the Vince Coleman from the 1986 Cardinals. Um, it's it's still a lift. You're still getting help. And that that part of it's a bonus. When it's, when it's a guy going out and you're, you know, so I'm leaving Detroit and, you know, I've been kind of the back end of the bullpen for Detroit. Guys are looking at me and they're happy for me, you know. You know that it's, you know, guys like me, Vince Coleman, at that they're probably not going to be mainstays and long-term guys, right? In that organization, 
Yeah. So then it becomes you become happy for that player that he gets another opportunity to to go get into the playoffs and do something, mm-hmm. and you know that he's running out of time. So you be, you're you're happy for that guy. You know, it's not not um, it's not depressing. It's not a letdown. It's right. You know, it becomes a friendship thing where you're you know you're happy for your your guy to go get another shot. So in July '97. The Royals traded John Nunnally and Chris Steins to the Reds and brought back Hector Carrasco and Scott Service. And as I recall, both those guys are relievers. Do you look at that as like fortification for the bullpen? Do you look at it as competition? Is it a bit of both? Is it, hey, all hands on deck because we're trying to do something here? What is your view from where you're at? Uh, Obviously, you know, you're in your 30s, so you're not with the Orioles or it's not that part of your career anymore. But are you just kind of like a let's go, let's put together the best thing we can and, and go to war? Um, yeah, you know what? I mean, I, I think we, we needed a little bit of help. And you're looking at it, like I said, we're we're in a wild card race. And, and um, it was, I don't know, you, you, you get one, one aspect of it where you're looking at it going, okay, are these guys going to bump me out of the eighth inning? Because I don't, you know, I really, I really enjoy the back end of the game. Mm-hmm. And you know, with them being in the Reds, didn't see them a whole lot, and didn't know what you know what was coming in for the most part. But ended up getting a couple of solid guys that were you know seventh inning and late guys. Um, so you're looking at it selfishly, going, okay, am I getting bumped out? And then you got the team side where you're going, okay, we just got better in the bullpen by a lot. And you know, Stein and Nunley both ended up having you know some major league time and. and Decent numbers and careers, but you know we had a bunch of out young outfield guys for Nunley, and and Stein was, you know, a little bit buried mm-hmm. in the infield, so they were kind of bouncing up and down a little bit, and it was, I think it was a pretty even trade in the grand scheme of it. Mm-hmm. What what was the deal with? So ten days later, the Royals trade Tom Goodwin. Uh, speedy outfielder. Both he and Nunnally were fast. I, b- I believe, as I recall, that Royals outfield could really, really, really run with Nunnally and um, Goodwin and maybe a young Johnny Damon, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yep. What was the rationale for trading for Dean Palmer in a season where you're going to lose 94 games? Although I know he had, I think he played another year, 98 with the Royals, but um, what did that feel like? You know, they went out and got a really good third baseman, not a particularly young one, but was it just, hey, Goodwin's kind of peaked. You know, he's a speed guy, but he's maybe not going to be a big offensive threat. Do you kind of remember what the vibe was like around the team where, like, kind of pricking up your ears, like, what's going on here? Yeah, I, I didn't really, you know, you didn't know what it was, what was, what was going on. You're rarely privy to any, in, you know, information. Mm-hmm. Um, Goodwin was one of my teammates on the 88 team for the, uh, the Olympics. So we went way back. And I, I remember, you know, just kind of looking at him and, and he gets traded and you give him a hug and he's heading out and you're just like going, you're, you're happy that he's getting a shot in a different spot. And, you know, I was just like, dude, I'm going to miss you, man. Mm-hmm. And then Palmer comes in and Palmer was great to play with. And he ended up, you know, having decent numbers, but he was, you know, huge numbers a couple of years earlier with Texas. So it was, it was a strange trade. Yeah. Didn't know who was going where, but I think Texas I don't know why Texas was getting rid of Palmer. I really don't. I don't I don't remember a third baseman coming up behind him that was gonna fill that spot. 
Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really remember one either. Um, and two with Goodwin, he was almost like kind of a precursor to Gerard Dyson in terms of, uh, you basically had like two or three of those guys where it was just like, um, you know, you just got jackrabbits out there and I'm sure, you know, I don't know if you, cause your statistics don't really tell us if you were a ground ball or a fly ball guy specifically, but if any fly balls you gave up, you had to feel, uh, pretty good about, um, you know, those guys chasing them down. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was an equal opportunity distributor nice. between fly balls, ground balls. Well, you got a lot of strikeouts back in the day too. For, for that era, you had a lot of strikeouts. I did. Um, well, in Baltimore before I, before I hurt my elbow, um, you know, had that, uh, I think if you go online, that uh, was a pitching ninja has that overlay of pitches, you know, both looking very similar going, you know, 50 feet. And then all of a sudden, Mm-hmm. Breaking ball dives one way, fastball rides up a little bit, up and in. Tunneling. And that was me. That was me, um, you know, before I hurt my elbow. It was my, you know, I mainly pitched arm side. And then my breaking ball would come right out of uh, a right-hander's belt and break. So I would have about a, you know, not 50 feet, but 40 feet of pitch recognition where you didn't know which one was which. Well, that's that's uh, certainly good for deception purposes. I did figure out what third baseman they were making room for. The senior, and it was. Fernando Tatis. Ooh. He annihilated uh, in 97 Tulsa in AA and then made the jump, struggled with Texas, there got flipped to St. Louis, yep. and the rest is okay. history. And then at some that point, explains it, because I was like going, okay, it wasn't, you know, I mean, now you kind of think a third baseman's coming through, and you're going, you know, automatically go to Beltre. Yeah. And uh, I was like, no, wait, no, Beltre was a still, was still a puppy. A Dodger at that time. He came up and, well, he came up and played with me his rookie year in uh, was it 01, 2000. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was, he was super so young. He hadn't, uh, yeah, he was way young, so. Um, yeah, it was, that was a weird trade. That really was. Well, the rest is history as Fernando Tatis Sr. eventually begat Jr. and everybody we talk about now, uh, <laughs> getting biblical on people. So we'll, we'll wrap up with a couple more here. And I have to ask you about this one. I'm, I don't know how uncomfortable it's going to be, but the Diamondbacks on July 8th, 99, traded for Matt Manti. And they traded Brad Penny, who ended up becoming a really good big league starter. Um, and then near as I could tell, it kind of looked like that was the, the window closing on your save opportunities in Arizona and it opening up for Manti. Now, at that point in your career, was that a difficult thing to swallow? Because you were having a, a nice year. You were not pitching poorly. And was it hard to – I guess I, I don't even want to ask if it was hard because I don't want to lead the witness. But what was that like to see your role change based on the fact that, I, as I recall, he threw really hard – kind of a young hot shot um, and a good trade for the Marlins. But uh, what, what was that like? What was the vibe like mid season to have them bring in Manti like that? Well, you, yeah, you, but you need to understand. I, I, I had blown. So I had a, a string of years of about four years where in spring training, I would end up straining um, a nerve or a tendon in my forearm and it knocked me out. I'd get a cortisone shot and be seven to 10 days and it would knock me out. Mm-hmm. And so I'd end up being behind. Well, then I had a good year in 98 closing 99. I go, and it happens so late in spring training 
And then I had another issue with my wrist. Well, I mean, I, I explained to people, I was like, your, your body just kind of breaks when you turn 33. It's weird. Well, I'm 35, and so I get it. I was 30, yeah, and I was 33. And, and so the, the tendon in my forearm, then I have to get a cortisone shot in my right wrist because I got a nerve issue. And so all this happens, you know, eight to 10 days before the season's to start. And the Diamondbacks were up front with me and they babied me and were taking care of me. And, and Showalter's like, you know, do we start you on the DL uh-huh. or, you know, or you're going to, for the most part, you're, you're not going to pitch much in spring training and we're just going to throw you into the season. And um, it was a mistake. I, I said, you know, I knew we were going to be really good. Like I said, we had Randy Johnson, Luis Gonzalez, Steve Finley just got traded over. We'd end up trading for Tony Womack. This team was loaded. Uh-huh. And I was, I was pumped, you know, to be closing for this great team finally. And um, made the mistake of starting the season. And I blew, blew opening day in L.A. Um, second and I couldn't pitch back-to-back days, so two days later, I'm in Atlanta. I blow first game in Atlanta. I blow the third game in Atlanta on an air. And so I, I leave. I, I get out of April with like four or five blown saves, and I only had four blown saves the whole year before. Uh-huh. So Diamondbacks are kind of, you know, at the end of April, they're they're starting to look around. And, uh, you know, get put into a couple bad spots that end up, you know, guy on third base one run lead nobody out here you go save this game well you're not getting out of that so another blown save um and i end up i think i had six or seven blown saves i knew it was coming yeah and i ended up i ended up you know throwing well and doing really well in the eighth inning spot setting up manti but when it happened i was i was pissed yeah and i knew that it was you know it was going to be the end of my time there in arizona too which i loved arizona and so it meant more than just I lost my spot. It meant I was, you know, I was on the outs in Arizona, and um, you know I was going to be a free agent. So wasn't going to be the, you know, coming off of 30 or 40 saves for a team and your free agent means a lot more than what I ended up with 14, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. So um, I was. It, it took me took me a couple of days and Showalter, you know, Showalter handled it really well and calls me and he's like, you know, I know this isn't what you wanted, but this is, I need you to, I need you to teach him how to be a closer. Cause yeah. he had, you know, young guy and, and uh, hadn't really been in that spot. And he goes, I need you to, I need you to help him become a, you know, become a closer and, and you know, be with him every day. And, and, um, you know, that was what I could do. So I did that. Boy, the, the Marlins were a closer farm for a while there with Trevor Hoffman and I think you get Urbina and yeah. Manti and a, a few guys. That's uh, yeah. that's, that's crazy. Yeah. Armando Benitez, maybe? I don't remember if he was there. Maybe I'm remembering that wrong. Yeah. But, um, yeah, Benitez came came from the Baltimore chain. He was Yeah, that's it. He was always threatening uh, every time that I would, wouldn't have a great game in Baltimore in like 92, <laughs> 93. They're going, well, down on the farm, we got Armando Benitez. I'm like, his ERA is still higher than mine in the big leagues. I was like, you guys just need to stop. Yeah, he threw the hell out of the ball, but no, no idea where it was going, as I recall. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that Diamondbacks team was like all hands on deck for relief help once you got hurt. I think they traded for Darren Holmes, John Frascatori, uh, Ed Vosberg signed late, 
And then um, Dan Plesek. I got to ask you about Dan Plesek. Any good Dan Plesek stories? Plesek was a piece of work. I thought we got Greg Swindell too, didn't we? I mean, you, pro- we had... you might have early in the year. Uh, I know he was with the Twins to start 97. Was he on the 97 team with you? Yeah. Might have been, might have been 98. He on, and he came, I thought he came over in 99 too. Well, he was I'm definitely sure. on the 98 team because I interviewed him for my story on the David Wells Perfecto. So 99 probably lines up for him being on that team with you. Yeah, we might have to look that one up. Um, but, uh, oh, Dan Plesak is just a piece of work. I mean, I've, I, I'd gotten to watch him in the late 80s, early 90s, where he was, you know, he was 95, 96 on the left side, no sleeves in Milwaukee in April, just kind of looking at him going, dude, you're not. And, you know, it's fun to fun to watch him on MLB tonight, but he uh, he's a lefty. He's a uh, he's, no, careful. He's funny. He's quirky. I throw left-handed. Careful. Okay, my bad. But you no, know it's what all I'm good. talking about where you just kind of get that goofy lefty uh, lefty reputation. And that mm-hmm. was that was totally police act. Yeah. Well, they signed uh, Byung-Hun Kim that off season too. So that, you guys had a lot of hands on deck for bullpen help that year. Yeah, we did, and it was you know um, we had a good bullpen. That was yeah Byung-Hun Kim's first year, and he was getting a little bit of save opportunities. And it was, you know, just kind of one of those where you're, you're, you're at the end of your career, you're, you're fending off, you know, young guns every night. And it's just a whole different aspect of motivation when you're, you know, you're, you're, you're focused on getting, getting the save and finishing the game, Yeah. you know, for the team side of it. And then you're also going, you know, I I don't have too much wiggle room with young Hun Kim and, and, uh, Holmes had closed a little bit in Colorado and Frascatori had closed for, you know, a couple minutes in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And so you had all these guys that had a little back end experience and you're just every day going, okay, I need to close this because we need to win, but I also need to close this because I don't have too much wiggle room with my job. Yeah, that's true with, with the relief. Uh, the relief role is uh, is very fickle. Well, is there anything I didn't touch on about the trade deadline? You know, there, there's no longer that waiver deadline anymore. I kind of like the waiver deadline for guys to kind of sneak through. Uh, you get like the Alex Rios claim from Toronto where he just gets dumped on the White Sox. I like the added intrigue, but at the same time, too, deadlines spur action, and that's what we saw this last week. Uh, how do you feel about the current state of the MLB pr- trade deadline? And is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to get out there? No, nope. once again, Brandon, you were spot on and stellar and, uh, you know, carried the, uh, carried the podcast, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, the waiver thing's kind of, it was a fun aspect of, of man. I, it seemed like there was a couple teams that would float their whole team out there. Right. And it would be, you know, it would be a 25 man waiver claim. And uh, it wasn't totally, you know, unrealistic to go, okay, Greg, you you just went on waivers. And I was like, really? And you're not even thinking about it, you know, but <laughs> not that kind of waivers. What the interest is, well, yeah, but you're just seeing what the interest is. Yep. You're getting floated out there. And, mm-hmm. and then, you know, you yank back off. But I remember a couple of teams dumping their whole team on there, just going, seeing, seeing what was out there. There was one question I wanted to ask. It's not super related, but uh, was the was the roster limit twenty five your entire career, or was it twenty four when you started? It was twenty five. Okay, it was twenty five. I know um, in uh, eighty seven, I think it was twenty four, and there was that whole thing with free agency and 
keeping costs down. And we'll talk about that maybe another time because, uh, you know, it's, a, it's well, it was before your time, so we probably won't. But um, I, I believe it was 24 for a brief minute there before 25 and now 26. Yeah, no, it was 25. And uh, you guys want to posture on something interesting. We we had 10-man pitching staffs. Yeah. Run, run, run through that one for a little while. We could, uh, you know, start talking about, now they got you know three guys sitting on the bench and one of them's a backup catcher, so they only got two guys sitting on the bench and mm-hmm. how much different how much different that used to be when it was you know six or seven guys sitting on the bench or six well you know and a ten man ten man pitching staff and a five man bullpen well, you can't yell at me to get off your lawn this week because I understand you're not at home so we'll uh, we'll save that we'll table that for when you're back home and you can yell at right, me to get off your lawn with the innings uh, again thank you so much for this week again if you're if you're listening we are powered by access twins access twins.substack.com subscribe for free with your email address uh, or if you pay money I'll send you a hat we're we're uh, sponsored by hinterland coffee of Maple Grove. Humility Chains on Etsy, that's Royce and Cindy Lewis. Three Star Sports Cards, two locations in the Twin Cities. And again, thank you so much to them. Thank you so much, Greg. We'll talk again next week about Team USA. I think that's going to be a really fun episode as well. I'm looking forward to it, Brandon. Great job. All right. So thank you again for listening to That 90s Baseball Pod. Hopefully we'll see you again real soon.